thing that they um, ask is that at some point, I'm going to send you a note that says that you explicitly uh, allow the posting of the recording. Yes. So, uh, okay, we are, we are going. Um, so welcome to the teaching curve, Jeff. I'm really had to, glad to have you here. Thank you, uh, glad to be a part of it. So as you know, these podcasts are really about trying to help people to feel comfortable and, and energized about spending their time and resources on becoming great teachers and what that takes. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to and decide that it's worth it to invest your energy in being a great teacher. Yeah, well, again, thanks for the opportunity to be here. And I'm happy to talk a little bit about my own background and development, and then, you know, more recent contemporary commitments that I have to teaching and learning. Uh, so again, I'm Jeff Lantis. I'm a professor of political science at the College of Worcester. I teach classes at the College of Worcester, which is a small liberal arts college on topics like international relations and foreign policy analysis, international security, technology, and even disaster politics this semester coming up. But my background, you know, kind of led me to where I'm at in some interesting ways. And I guess I would start by saying that um, I grew up in a family of teachers and church pastors, all of whom were committed to sharing messages of their own to certain audiences. And so I think from my, you know, very young age, I was kind of mentored or, or inculcated into such an environment and saw the potential to make connections with people. And that stayed with me along the way in my decision to attend a small liberal arts college for undergraduate, I went to a small college in West Virginia called Bethany College, where there were only 800 students. And uh, I was able to study political science and begin to explore and establish myself there. I think in a smaller pond, if you will, like that, I found a lot of connections and resonance and was able to make really good progress in my learning during those four years. Was actively involved in things like Model United Nations, which again is about connecting with people and interacting in some interesting ways. And then went on to graduate school for a PhD at Ohio State University for the seven years after that. And it was during that time that I really became you know, well-trained and professionalized and prepared to become more involved in teaching and learning. But it also was at that time where I was attending a university where there were 55,000 students that I was convinced that where I wanted to be was a small liberal arts college environment. So I saw teaching, I was trained, I prepared, I taught my own classes at Ohio State, but I was always thinking about the undergraduate experience that I value greatly. And so I was able then after completing my PhD to go out of the job market and fairly quickly end up at the College of Worcester, which is again, that small liberal arts environment. We have about 2000 students in Northeast Ohio where I've been able then to establish myself and uh, develop my teaching and uh, approaches in administration and uh, commitment and service to the college over the years. It's been in this smaller college environment that I've been able to, I feel, thrive and develop my skills over time. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I think that there's a, a lot of ways in which people get into doctoral programs sometimes, and they're so attuned to that research ethos, that, that kind of trajectory into the discipline that's very much about how do you prove yourself as a research scholar, that a lot of the teaching stuff kind of loses out in that combination of what we really are and what we most of us do all the time in both of those things. 
Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, so this is an R1 university. This is a high ranked PhD program. Um, and so I got the training that I needed in uh, research and um, analytic work and, and have continued to advance that work over the last 25 plus years at Worcester. So I got the training I needed, but at the same time was always committed to and interested in the teaching dimension. Tried to get a class that I could serve as the instructor for as soon as I could in the graduate program. Actively involved in the Model UN program at Ohio State as well, which hmm. gave me other connections hmm. to teaching and working with small groups across that larger campus. So I maintained that commitment to teaching, although I definitely enjoy the research work and uh, follow that training strain as well. So one of the assertions that I'm making in these is that, uh, that in order to be a really good teacher, there has to be that empathy and relationship with the students. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the students at Worcester and, and what, how you connect to them in terms of that professor-student relationship. Yes, so important, right? That level of engagement that professors at, uh, at colleges and universities like ours have with our students, so important. And so I came into Worcester knowing the importance and value of developing relationships with students inside and outside the classroom that would support their educational journeys. So I was committed to that early on. And what I found were a number of interested and engaged students from the get-go at Worcester, in fact, who were, I think, eager to have that level of involvement and support from some professors. Now, Worcester prides itself on providing that kind of personalized educational environment and high quality training across the board. That said, I felt like I could make a difference as a younger professor to connect with students who saw neat possibilities in their learning and in their broader trajectories and did just that. I became the Model UN advisor. It seems like this is a common strain through our conversation, the Model UN advisor right away and uh, you know, was adopted into that program to work with 20 or 30 like-minded and interested students. But then the students at Worcester are in general motivated and committed students. Students who have chosen to attend a small liberal arts college because they see the potential there. They know the potential value added of the experience. And so I began to work with them very closely uh, right away. One more aspect I'll mention is that the College of Worcester has a senior independent study advising program. This is a required thesis for all students at the college, which means that from you know, the second or third week that I was working at Worcester, I was working one-on-one -on -one in tutorial style advising and support arrangements with five, 10, 12 students in any particular year. And of course, that's where you forge those strong and long-lasting relationships. Yeah, I, I um, remember hearing about that program that Worcester does in terms of um, really nurturing students, not just as people who are learning the discipline, but people who are researching and inviting them in to be agents as part of the scholarship idea. They get to be scholars. I, I think that's amazing. Thank you. It's a really rewarding aspect of the college. It is something that's distinctive, requiring it for all students, for example. But from the beginning, I saw the incredible payout, the, the uh, ownership that students take in their projects, the participation and experience they have in individualized research and engagement. And some of my very first students, the ones we're you know, kind of referring to in general here that I worked with, have gone on to terrific things, including successful law careers, work in the foreign service, and work in other government agencies. Mm. So I think it pays off in some good ways. Right, exactly. So um, can you tell me 
I'm intrigued by the connection you made between being a student at Bethany and then going and being a faculty member at Worcester. Can you talk about how your experience as a student influenced the way that you approach teaching your, your approach to being that person on the other side? Oh, absolutely. So um, I remember the undergraduate years and I remember my own interest in particular topics and the ways that our professors would find those connections to us and with us and encourage that along in interesting ways. So it might be a particular you know, research area. We'd meet with the professors in the smaller college environment and they would tell us about some related scholarship or you know, give us a book that we can use or borrow for a while to advance the work on that. It was that kind of connection, I think, that lit a spark uh, that helped to develop and nurture my interest moving mm. forward. Um, it was also you know, quite simply and quite directly, uh, the opportunity for a committed person like myself to engage in an environment where um, my ideas were valued and where I could be encouraged to continue to develop them. Mm -hmm. That engagement, that relationship, that valuation of students seems to kind of go full circle in this journey. Excellent. So can you talk a little bit about the, the approach that you have to teaching your courses, uh, foreign policy analysis courses, um, and kind of the key pieces about how that translates into practice. Yeah, in fact, I'm very committed to that translation into practice that you just mentioned. Um, so I've always been really interested in policy myself. And I've learned more about how connections can be made between international relations theory and policy through my undergraduate and definitely my graduate years. And I try to play that out in terms of thinking about application for students in all of my classes now. Most of my classes really do have a policy bent to them or a policy undercurrent to them that allows us to talk both, you know, about important building block theories on any given day in class, but also to make real applications and connections. So I want students to think about how the tools that they're developing in our classes can directly be connected to policy issues in the United States, but also abroad because we have a strong international student concentration at the College of Worcester. And so that application has been so important in my own work. And, you know, frankly, is something that sparks my own interest and drives me every day to bring in that new example or case study, or take that teaching moment in the class to make those connections. Mm -hmm. So um, in your years of teaching, and in particularly these kinds of small courses where you're interacting with the students, are there things that you've learned that work, uh, techniques, tactics that you would recommend to people who are teaching in that kind of environment? Absolutely. And let me talk for a minute about the connection here between your question and the broader theme, this idea of our teaching curve or the arc or the journey that we're on in terms of teaching and development as professionals is very much what I experienced. Um, I'll boil it down in kind of a simple way. I left graduate school being well-trained in lecturing to large groups. That doesn't translate all the time to effective and engaged environments in small liberal arts undergraduate colleges or gosh, almost anywhere. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a long-term recipe for success. And so what I had to do was I had to adapt and adopt skills and techniques that I saw and that I learned from others and that I developed by attending some professional workshops and conferences devoted to teaching and used those, translated that back into the Worcester classroom 
The simplest of examples might be this. I, when I was a young new professor at the College of Worcester, I would walk around the hallways of my building and I would observe classes where professors were sitting up front and facilitating conversations among small groups of students. What a radical idea, breakout <laughs> groups, right? Discussion. And I thought, wow, that looks like that really works and the students really enjoy it. And so as part of my journey, it's been in a sense, kind of an evolution from standing stiffly at the chalkboard to facilitating exercises and active learning projects, simulations and debates in classes where students themselves participate directly mm -hmm. and gain ownership from that experience. Mm -hmm. It has been in essence a decision on my part to try to transfer the responsibility of that ownership from me to the students. And of course that begins anew every semester you work to develop and foster that community of learning. Mm -hmm. But uh, it has been a real successful, broader journey I've been on. So that's really interesting. I, I hear my own journey reflected in what you're talking about there. But I know that there are lots of people out there, early career uh, people who are just getting into the, the teaching gig, um, especially maybe women or people from underrepresented groups who feel nervous about seeding that sense of authority for themselves. You know what I mean? That, that uh, while we don't have to be the expert on everything, turning class over in some ways to what the students are doing, that, that feels risky. It does feel risky. And it, it's a leap that all of us have to make at some point with support. And let me just take a chance to, to an opportunity to mention um, that I really benefited from talking to my friends and colleagues over the years about developing more interactive and active learning exercises for my classes by attending the International Studies Association, ISA, ALIAS section meetings. ALIAS is the Active Learning and International Affairs section of ISA, where I began attending as a young teacher scholar and uh, sought dialogues right there at the business meetings and in supporting forums um, about being bold, taking these steps, imagining integrating more active learning exercises and seeding or sharing that ownership with the students. So it wasn't automatic for me, of course. I had to talk to a lot of people who have done mm -hmm. that and done it successfully. Right. I read journal articles often on pedagogy and thought about the techniques that they applied and how I might adapt them successfully for my own class. And then I experiment in class. And let's also say this to anybody who's listening, this is about experimentation, right? It's about our effort to innovate, think about, and assess how well new efforts or exercises are working and recognize that some are gonna work pretty well and some may be a challenge that we'll just let pass by and not repeat in the next iteration of the class. So it is a journey and it's taken me years on that process. Right, and you can see how that attitude of experimentation, almost entrepreneurship, right? About how, the, uh, how teaching works, is different than making sure you know the material. And it requires some really good empathy with the audience to be able to think about how, how to make what this new information, kind of how to integrate it into what their previous understanding of the universe when they come in. Yeah, yes, you have to be really, you know, as you said, empathetic, 
um, mindful of the audience and their interest. We're working with a new generation of students. What does that mean for a professor like me who's been in the business for some years? How do I adapt and adjust to their interests? But also that experimentation dimension that we're gonna try some things that'll work and be terrific. We'll maybe write them up and publish them ourselves as pedagogy pieces in journals someday. And we're gonna try a few things that might not work as well. Um, it is that marrying of content to student engagement and ownership that is, you know, that constant tension. But even the fact that we're talking about this, some folks are listening to this discussion, means that we're mindful of the importance of trying. Exactly. Yes. And there's support out there. There are, um, as you said, um, journal articles and disciplinary subsections of the, of the International Studies Association that can really help with connecting and giving you some courage and some backup, people to talk to about those things. Right. Um, and so I, I know that you've been involved recently in the uh, project to make that an explicit part of what the institution does at conferences. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to do that. So I've been really active with the alias section that I mentioned before. And several years ago was invited to step it up a notch and lead the ISA's new innovative pedagogy initiative. The ISA's new IPC or IPI initiative program is devoted to supporting teaching and learning and to encourage innovation and experimentation in the spirit of our discussion here today. Um, the IPC uh, really sponsors, is directly involved in sponsoring conferences. Back in the day before COVID, these were live and in-person conferences. <laughs> We've also now sponsored some great interactive forums online um, where we invite folks to gather and talk about teaching and learning, experiment and learn about innovations and advancements in the field. So what we do is the IPC pre-COVID um, effectively is a roadshow. It's a roadshow of terrific experienced teacher scholars who lead workshops with engaged, committed teacher scholars, advanced graduate students, linked to regional meetings of ISA around the US. Our next one planned is for October 2021, that's this fall, 2021, in association with the ISA South region. And we're planning a conference in Atlanta in October. And we're excited about that. We've had a couple of successes in the past with conferences out in Pasadena and in St. Louis. And we'd like to keep up those connections to and support for like-minded teacher scholars. And having been to them, or, or one of them, the one in Pasadena, I have I can say that these things are both informative in terms of that pedagogical skills, but that network of people that you get and that support system uh, of other people who have decided to invest in this way into their students into this component of what it means to be a professional scholar. It's really energizing. And um, just having conversations like this, where you get to bounce ideas back and forth and say, uh, you know, I tried this, it didn't necessarily work. What do, it, those are energizing and, and reassuring to take those risks in your own classrooms, I think. Oh, absolutely. I think that those hours spent are so valuable, both in the workshops, but also in the conversations that you have in and around the meeting, where we promote networking and idea sharing to make sure that we can, you know, vet and, and float out ideas to see 
how well we're doing and what we might imagine for innovation and change. Because after all, our journey is also about innovating, right? Our journey is also about adapting to the times and being creative. And so we want to encourage everybody who's interested in that to kind of come along. So do you, having spent so many years thinking and studying and researching and leading really the discipline on pedagogical issues, I'm wondering if you have any impressions about the, whether anything about teaching international studies or any of its various components, is there anything unique about that? Is there something that our discipline has that is um, pedagogically unique? That's a great question. Um, and certainly it's something that makes us think, right? About what we do that is distinct or different. Well, the first thing I would acknowledge is that what we're talking about, global politics or international relations is a moving target. Hmm. We teach in a discipline where we describe, study, and analyze events that are happening uh, around us, the sands shifting under our feet, making it feel to me really dynamic and exciting, but making it a little bit of an extra challenge, right? We're not teaching mathematics here, and I don't wanna diss mathematics too much, but we're not teaching mathematics here or geology. We're talking about a terrain that is shifting almost all the time. And so keeping up with the times is very important in how we present and share information. But also interesting to me is that the paradigms have shifted in the 25 plus years that I've worked at the College of Worcester, the importance of particular paradigms. I was trained during the Cold War when it was quite clear that neorealism dominated. Hmm. Today, I'm fascinated by constructivism and all of the other alternative perspectives that have advanced in our field. So what do we've got? We've got shifting sands underneath our feet. We've got shifting paradigms or paradigmatic perspectives. And we've got students whose interests are changing over time. We have to adjust to all those things. Indeed. Um, and if you're, I'm sure your courses are much like mine, at least some of them. And I'm wondering, how do you sell that to students? How do you convince students that studying what, we, what our classes are about is worthwhile? Yeah, um, a couple of key ways that I try to. One, I sell the importance of the most significant or foundational themes in our discipline, like the studies of war and peace. I use contemporary connections and examples to think about conflict, violence, and conflict resolution, and say, you know, hey, these are enduring factors, factors like war and peace, factors like power and the study of power differentials around the world levels of analysis. I try to kind of hammer home the importance of those themes then and now. But second, I probably work very hard to, uh, I often try to work very hard to make contemporary connections to themes that are interesting and important. An easy example of that would be my work to develop my global disaster politics class, a new class that I'm teaching for the very first time this spring, spring 2021. This class was something I thought about and developed in consultation with other teacher scholars who have taught these things around the United States over the last two or three years. But of course, then during the COVID pandemic, it became so much more important to me and so much potentially more interesting to lots of students. And so I pushed myself to try to, if you will, build some order out of the chaos mm. for my students, but also for me. Mm -hmm. in, in crafting my interest and connections to broad themes of international cooperation, global health, to the disaster politics frame, 
using some comparative public policy theories, and of course, heightened by or accented by important ongoing tragedies and challenges. That's uh, fantastic. In terms of the, I'm sure that students are interested in taking this because everybody wants to get some purchase on trying to not just understand, but also explain those things to other people. And so what you can provide for them as they become agents of figuring this stuff out in your class is the um, prestige almost of being able to take this to the dinner table with the family on Sunday or, or and, and kind of demonstrate not just for themselves, but to the family. And then that really deepens and solidifies that sense that understanding these complex things is worthwhile. Oh, absolutely. I, you said it very well. Um, so what I can imagine them is, uh, is that students will be able to make connections between some of the generic theory frames we talk about. I'm gonna talk about punctuated equilibrium theory a little bit in class to disaster scenarios or crises. But of course, then very much connected to the COVID experience that we're all going to, I think, be reflecting on for a long time to come. So I'm excited about the class. That's great. I liked how you said that uh, it is not just a chance. I mean, because it's a new class for you, you're going to be figuring some of this stuff out in the process of constructing the environment in which the students figure that out too. Oh, at the same time, right. I've spent, you know, months building up to this class, but I'm also going to be processing it as we go. And so for me, it's been energizing. It's been a nice reminder of the value of the work that we do. Uh, and I'm lucky at a college like Worcester to have the occasional chance to teach some of these new interesting classes, right? And work them into a broader rotation. Jeff, I really appreciate you coming and sharing some of those insights with your, your history and your expertise that you've built up over decades, really, of working on pedagogy and international studies issues. And, and so I think that there's a lot in there that we can really dig into and unpack about how to translate our own energies into productive teaching. Yeah. So thanks very much. It's great conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity, Jamie. And, you know, let me just also take the chance to, to let people know about the importance of the ISA Innovative Pedagogy Initiative and other opportunities across our discipline, like the APSA teaching and learning conferences that are held, as well as more and more virtual and online opportunities. And so I hope folks will look out for more information that we'll be sharing this spring for the October ISA IPC conference in Atlanta. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. All right, I'm gonna stop.